Hello and welcome back to the show. This week, we're sitting down with Temi Amwale, founder and executive director of The Forefront Project. The Forefront Project is a member-led youth organisation that empowers young people and communities to fight for justice, peace and freedom. In this conversation, we speak about some of the grassroots level efforts that are needed to foster change, the importance of mentorship and the role of community in nurturing young individuals. We also talk about the challenges faced by activists in their pursuit of justice and the need for a paradigm shift from punishment to healing and repair in the justice system. So in this episode, you can expect to learn about the intricacies of initiating and sustaining a movement which is aimed at social good. You'll be able to get insights into the real life experiences and motivations that drive community activists such as Temi, the hurdles they face, the resilience and the determination that is required to overcome them. So without saying too much, let's get to the show. The way I see it, you're a very multifaceted individual. Yeah. So I want to start with an open question, like in your own words, how would you describe yourself and the work that you do? Thank you. That is, I do actually accept multifaceted. I find it hard sometimes because I feel people always want to put you into a box. Yeah. I don't feel like I fit in any of them and I never have. So in terms of how I describe myself and the work that I do, I'm purpose driven. And for me, I feel my purpose is around helping society learn how to heal and repair from harm. I think that guides the work that I do and it has all different elements. I'm a youth worker. I am a community activist, a campaigner, a strategist. I try and vision for the future. I'm I'm creative. There's different elements to it, but what drives me is wanting to see that type of change. I think we live in a society that's very harmful and there's so many layers to that harm and I want us to find how we heal. So within that sense, I feel like I'm a healer as well. Mm. Yeah. I like that. So you mentioned straight away about purpose. Mm. Where did you get that kind of sense of purpose from? Like, Is it something that you've had from an early age or is it something that kind of developed as you grew older? When I was younger, I wanted to be a lawyer. And I wanted to be a lawyer because I had this idea of human rights. I didn't know exactly what what they were, but this sense of, like, justice. And more than a sense of justice, I think, at that age, a strong sense of injustice, a strong sense of things that were unfair. From the early time of school, learning about everything from enslavement of, of African people to learning about apartheid in South Africa. These were things that we learned about in year seven, year eight, that that informed me, that made me want to, learning about death row in America. And I really actually wanted to be a a human rights lawyer and exonerate people from death row. That was (laughs) by like earliest year, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And as soon as I set my sights on that, I was very tunnel vision on becoming a lawyer. But I also didn't know all the different ways that you could make change. So that was what was guiding me. But underneath the foundation were these instances of like harm that was happening at a systemic level, a societal level, historical, intergenerational. I have that lens now to look at it like that. But as a child, it just felt like it didn't feel right. And I was always very... I felt things deeply. So 
there's empathy, but there's, I could envision myself being in those times. I would always go deep and wonder like what life was like for people in those different circumstances and really put myself in their shoes and feel that pain. And just, it felt quite unbearable to mm -hmm. accept like that these things happen, have happened in the past and that these things are happening in the world. Yeah. So that was the change I wanted to make. Was there a particular type of, say, pain or trauma that can, you connected with more? Because you mentioned, say, like, death row, yeah. say, like, race relations. Yeah, no, from an early yeah. age, I, I saw the way that African people, people from the African diaspora, mm. whether in America and other parts of the world, were being treated, and I connected with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think especially, yeah, and especially, like, as you called yourself an activist as well. A community activist. Community Okay, what's the difference? To me, and I'll, I will shout out an elder, Stafford Scott, that has informed my thinking on that. For me, my activism is community-rooted. It's about looking at the issues that were happening as a young person in my community, acknowledging that there are other communities that are very similar to mine and that we're experiencing similar issues but it's rooted in being of the community. I think now, as a term, I don't know, there's a lot of debate around the word activist anyway. You know, are we, there's a sense of being an organiser, which is slightly different because it's what is the day-to-day -day work of mobilising people? And I think that's why a lot of people choose to use the term organiser instead. I think the term activist now can be anybody can say that they're an activist now it can just be <laughs> it can just be posting something online true i don't know i think that is some people's definition of it so i always preface it because it was something that stafford taught me when i was younger to say no this is community yeah yeah and it resonated with me yeah it's, it's interesting because i feel like when we think of activists nowadays it's probably is more Coined to the terms of people who just do stuff online mm. or like say the likes or may not may not actually be putting in the work in relevant communities and i think especially there's a lot of pressure on particular influencers to post something and speak out on and everything speak out on everything even though they have no right or no place to kind of speak on it well, they don't know also yeah. they don't know about all of these issues and yeah. sometimes i think there's a place for using platforms and for people that have platforms to to actually play a role but I think it should be guided and also there's a humility in acknowledging that you don't know about an issue and yeah. that maybe you're not the best informed on it. So I think it doesn't mean you can never speak on it, but it means do the, do the work to get educated on, on that issue if you're going to speak about it. And I think often now it's easy to just say you're, you're an activist. Yeah. But also I think... I didn't ever use that term from the be from the beginning. It wasn't how I would label myself again with the boxes. As people see you doing something and then they attach a label. So I feel like people called me an activist before I labeled myself as that. What were you labeling labeling yourself at that time? I didn't know how to label myself. Mm. I think after I set up Forefront as an organization, again, people tried to box the organization. And at the time there was a lot of I was so young as well, so 17, 18, when people were saying, you know, this is a, it's a social enterprise. I'm like, what was that? Like, what's a social enterprise? And a lot of people labelled it as that. It's, it's not a social enterprise. It's a community organisation. And, and it, it took time to unravel the kind of, the wider 
systems and agendas as to why people want to box things in in a certain way. But I think, yeah, other than doing the work yourself to educate on why choose to the, the words we use are important language is very important mm -hmm. so i never really liked there was a time when i said i'm a social entrepreneur but that was because people called me that and i felt well i'm not a i'm not something else it is about social yeah. impact it is about purpose it is about making a change in the community but i didn't have another language to label it mm. but very quickly as soon as i found another language i really moved away from the social enterprise terminology and, and I don't connect with that at all now. Yeah. And so going back to when you were 17, 18, yeah. so when you started Forefront, I imagine at that time you also still had the ambition to be like a human rights lawyer, right? You went to school, what did you study at uni? Yeah, I studied law. Yeah. So I was 16 when I set up Forefront. Okay. And at the time it was, it was really a plat, it was meant to be a platform. It was a campaign. It was about for myself as a young person that had been impacted by violence and my friends that were being impacted by violence, this sense that people weren't really listening to us and what we needed and how we felt about what we were going through. And no one was really talking to us about, about the violence that we were experiencing, the harm we were experiencing. So there was this sense that we need to be heard, like our experiences need to be heard. And that's what Forefront was about in the earliest Form, um, creating that platform for young people. Did something trigger for you to start Forefront in the first place? So, yeah, my friend was murdered. And I think I was 15. His name was Marvin, Marvin Henry. When he was killed, it was a month before his 17th birthday. And he was my, he had been my next door neighbour growing up in Green Park Estate. So I have known him since. I was born like he I moved to Grand Park I think I was like one week old when my family moved there he already his family already lived next door so we grew up together and he moved to a different house maybe when he was like 11 or and I was like nine so as children we we grew up very very close our families but when he moved away we weren't as connected and I didn't see him that often as a teenager I saw him here and there um, but actually, the two weeks before he was killed, I saw him for the first time in a long time at a, at a party that we were having for some birthdays. And yeah, that was the last time I saw him. It was strange because I, I thought about him after that day. You never think you're going to not see someone again. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? At that age, you don't want to think those things. But I feel like as you're as you are aged... And these experiences become more more common. Like he was my eye opener. I knew about violence affecting young people. I was a bit of a nerd about it, to be honest, because I went to a school where someone was stabbed outside and was killed. Um, the year before I went to that school, Kyan Prince was was killed outside the school that I went on to attend. And there was something for me, and I would have only been 10 when Kyan was killed, but like around that age of 10, 11, when that happened, just... I couldn't understand it and I was so curious so I started collecting newspaper articles I have thousands of them like from that age of around 11 that was everything anything to do with, with violence with young people with so-called gangs I say in gangs and yeah I didn't so I was aware of it but it was different when I saw 
Marvin on the front cover of the newspaper that I usually would collect. Yeah. And there was one moment, I've spoken about it before, but the day that he was killed after, after we had gone to his mother's house, everybody had, everyone had gathered there. And on the way home, I think for the first time being alone that day, because I found out and I was with a friend when I, when we found out. And so they felt, and then there was Blackberry Messenger and everyone's, you know, that was the time everybody was just pinging and it was very busy. It was very chaotic. Then we go there, there are hundreds of people at the house. Yeah. And the first kind of time I was alone on my way home from that and a woman was on the train. The train was pretty empty. I think it was just me and her and at that section of the train and we have the Evening Standard and I can see Marvin's face on the, he's literally the front cover of the Evening Standard. And there was something in that moment because that woman, she looked at him for a few seconds, very short. She just turned the page and it felt like she wasn't to know. Like how you, how, she wouldn't have known that this is somebody that I deeply care about. Like I'm in the middle of even trying to understand how something like this could happen. Yeah. But it was also the headline. It said something like, teen killed after gang feud, something like that. Does that even mean? How can they? the paper write something like that hours after a child is killed? What do they know about him? What gave them the right to label him in that way? And I saw that moment, how... To me, in my mind, it was the word, and and him. She's a white lady. He's a young black guy. Paired with that word of gang, what's there to what's there to think about? What's there to spend more than a second or two looking? Everyone knows about that. Yeah. And it felt really heartbreaking. That that's when I felt like people don't care. People don't. You can be killed as a child in this country. No one, no one cares. cares. Yeah. And that was the feeling that was the catalyst for Forefront. Mm. Um, because also we grew up in Barnet. As a borough, Graham Park is one of a small amount of like disadvantaged or deprived areas in the borough. But Barnet as a borough is very affluent, it's very wealthy. So there was another layer of, well, also they, of course they don't care. Why would they care? Mm. The majority of people that live in this borough are, are rich. Yeah. We're just like the stain on the borough. They wish they would prefer if Graham Park wasn't part of it. And now it's all being re regenerated and Colindale's a completely different area. So you could have predicted that to happen. Mm -hmm. But I think that was another layer. So before I set up Forefront, originally as a campaign, I ran for the <laughs> for the youth parliament. <laughs> <laughs> I ran for the UK youth parliament for Barnet on this issue of the way that violence is affecting young people and that I thought more people in the borough as a whole should care about it and it shouldn't just be for those of us from Graham Park or the other estate in, in the borough to, to feel something about this. And I felt like not enough was being done. I felt like they had a responsibility to him, to Marvin, that I feel like they didn't care. And also for us as his friends and people that cared about him, and I'm saying we were young, 15, 16, his friendship group, no one ever spoke to us about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that makes me so sad because I know that that still happens today. Like young people are being bereaved, like their friends are being murdered and it, they become desensitized to it because no one is talking to them about that's It's not normal. Yeah. It might happen frequently, but 
it's not normal that that is happening. And that was the sense that I felt at the time as well. So it started as that campaign. Very quickly, I realised that Youth Parliament wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So I was just like, <laughs> I'm going to go and do my own thing. Yeah. But Forefront was kind of born from that time, yeah. Yeah, it definitely feels like that. Um, what you mentioned about just being desensitised mm. to what's happening in the world. And um, they'll just name statistics in the newspaper, might say this person's name, might say what type of crime they committed, but there's no kind of retroactive statement to correct the record, especially when it, when it's wrong. Um, and yeah, people, it just feels like people don't care. And as young people, you get desensitised to these things. You're like, if no one cares, then why should I care? If no one's going to talk to me. And even what you said, like being, say, at the age of 11, 12, 13, and being able to collate newspaper articles of these things happening again and again and again, as a young person, that's even just giving you trauma because that's making you think this is normal to happen when it shouldn't be normal to happen. But I don't, well, I know that most teenagers were not doing that in their spare time. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I think it's connected back to what I said at the beginning around when I felt things deeply, once I kind of gravitated towards an issue of what I felt was injustice, I became very fixated on it. Yeah. And yeah, from that age, that was kind of the thing that, I was super curious about because I couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't understand it. Mm. And, I, and I wanted to understand. At the time when I'm 10, 11, 15 seemed so old to me at that yeah. age, you know. They're the people you look up to in the school. You're, you can't even get near them, you know. They, it seemed so distant. Mm. And I think similar, like when I got to 18 and I felt like I surpassed Marvin, I was like, this isn't, I don't, I, I, we've barely lived. Mm. And now... 10 years later, to to be killed at 15 years old is just, it's just tragic. It's horrible. So then at that time, um, so you felt disillusioned with UK Youth Parliament. Now you could have went down a different route to say become a politician or say criminal lawyer or there's different types of routes that you could have went down. Um, so talk to me a little bit more about like your own personal journey, say while at university and still building forefront or some of the different avenues that you're working on at that time so as really forefront was launched and then i started sick form so most of the early things we did were quite school oriented working with young people in schools and it was also around the law still at that point because i even i was doing law a level so even though i hadn't studied law yet i still was intending to be a lawyer and i thought the law was important and i thought it was important for young people to understand the law and their rights so some of the earliest work that we were doing was like know your rights programs with young people creating spaces to talk about things that were affecting them from stop and search to other kind of issues around policing and also violence and how how they felt about that and how they were impacted by that and it was very much about let's create the space let's speak about some of these issues let's learn some things that might be new around the different laws that might impact us as we grow and then also let's teach other young people those things so it was about kind of creating that space, training young people and then us going out together to deliver other workshops to other youth groups or... This is you whilst you're in sixth form? Yeah, and the young people, I say, they, I mean, they're my peers. They're not that much younger than me. They're in like, they're like 13, 14. Who is supporting 15. you though? In the early... When you say support, what do you mean? Like as in, where were you able to get the knowledge to deliver these workshops? Like, did you have anyone kind of 
mentoring you or like any anyone kind of guiding you in terms of what to do, what to do next? Or was it just off your own back, like, here's what I'm going to try and do? Like, how did you build up the knowledge, per se? It was just ideas. Mm. Looking back, I maybe I wish somebody <laughs> would, have actually, would have actually helped, but I felt confident. I felt like I could do it, to be honest. So before I even set up Forefront, there was, a, there was like all these young people getting kicked out of like their lessons. And once I got to GCSE year and we started having like free periods and I'll be kind of revising in the home base and I'd just be seeing certain young people constantly like the same getting kicked out, started to be speaking to them, build a relationship with them. And then I remember I just went to one teacher and I said, look, I just, I want to mentor this boy he keeps getting kicked out of maths every time in my free period he's getting kicked out of maths so why don't i just sp- can we formally have arrangement that he can come to me instead of going to maths she was just like okay <laughs> so that we started that for like a year he would just have sessions with me so i used to plan them what i want to speak to him about wow. talking to him about different things and he wasn't much younger than me about two years but at that in that gap it felt like a big enough gap to have a a, wisdom, a certain wisdom, but I learned a lot. I learned so much from that relationship. I'm, we're still, we still speak today, you know, we're still close today. And, I, and he knows, I tell him all the time that that year of us working together in that way really informed Forefront and what we would go on to do. So I learned a lot from that. But again, it was just seeing a problem and having an idea. And somebody might be crazy enough to be like, yes, this 16 year old can <laughs> speak to this 14 year old. It's like taking initiative. Yeah. What's the other alternative? He just sits outside and twiddles his thumbs. That's literally what was happening. So it was nice. It was nice getting to know him in that way and having to think about what are the kind of things that, from the conversations we would have, what are things that would motivate him, that would inspire him? What are things that would give him space to reflect on some of his own experiences? it was nice it was really nice so I think later on it was the it was that same teacher that I had approached that I was the teacher I spoke to when I wanted to set up forefront she was telling me about setting up charity and different things but she also in a way was kind of that I got the sense that people felt you're 16 like what are you talking about (laughs) like what would you mean you would have set up set up an organization like just do your GCSE. <laughs> <laughs> but she was she was quite supportive in that, just not shutting it down completely. So I was like, oh, okay, I've got a bit of, I'm just going to do it. Mm. And I think some of the, it was with the school offered some support. Like I would have business meetings, you know, in that sense with, with potential partners or other organizations that people that wanted to meet to talk about the work from SIGFORM. That's pretty They would cool. come into my school yeah. and, you know, I was able to do some of those early programs. I applied for some funding. And when I had the funding, I wanted to work with the young people in my school. It made sense in the first instance. So some of the first like projects that we did were, were based in the school and they allowed some young people to come from other schools into the school, very much used it as a venue and stuff like that. So in that way, they were helpful. But to be honest, because of what had happened to Kayan, they didn't want to be associated continuously with this issue of youth violence. They really wanted to distance themselves from it. So I got the sense that they they were supportive, they liked what I was doing, but at the same time, they didn't want to keep having that connection to young people and violence. And right. I'll say that it was, I found it quite shocking. Yeah, because I would have thought they would want to because they're trying to change the problem. I don't know if it's about changing the problem or because that's not what schools are really 
mm. about unfortunately it's about exams it's about it's not really about supporting young people in the personal things that they're going through like when it spills into the school then maybe it's like they would prefer it didn't do you know what i mean young people were getting stabbed outside of school yeah that were coming to the school young people were carrying weapons and feeling like they didn't have anyone to protect them and they couldn't talk to anyone. And I'm not just talking about my school, I'm talking about every every school, yeah. that's what's happening. So what's the role of a school? And I feel like they can, they can all do more, 100%. I think a lot of them don't know what to do and that's part of it. Like not, I think more so now, they, there is a lot of curiosity and from different teachers and key people, I'm sure there's a willingness, but they also have something to protect. They have the brand that they have to look after because otherwise people, no parent wants to send their child to a school where someone was killed. Mm, true. So from that side of it, I think that's why they were quite wanting to distance from that. Yeah, it's still a bit of a shame because especially if they've been able to see the work that you've been able to do internally, like I feel more schools or more people in those positions should give more power or more encouragement to like young people who have 100%. those ideas because... If you never got that word from that teacher, because that teacher probably saw you do the trial run with mm. that person who was getting kicked out and saw an improvement in her, in their behaviour and also the improvement in her class because it's not being disrupted. But then when that guy came back into the class, maybe it was even much better than it was beforehand. I don't know. I'm not sure if he even went back to math. <laughs> I'm not going to say. It wasn't his math teacher. This was yeah. the head of year that gave me the, that told me that I could do it. But, yeah, but even way, it's like just the fact that someone can give you that belief yeah. to keep on going because if they said no... Who I would knows? have found a way to do it. You would have found a way regardless. <laughs> <laughs> I would have found a way to do it. Because I was set on it. I yeah. felt like it was something. And I think it's, even in you asking that question mm-hmm. around the support and guidance, that's how I've always felt strongly. If there's something that I want to do. You're going to do it regardless. Even if I don't know how to do it, yeah. I will figure it out. So how did the workshops kind of develop? So you're in sixth form and then you go to LSE to study law. Um, you still went to uni, in fact, yeah. right? And then was there... What was the point at that point of doing your law degree? Was it to continue advocating? Did you have an idea? I still felt like I was going to be a lawyer. Yeah. Um, it was an organisation. Forefront was an organisation, but it was much smaller scale, you know, in terms of it was quite programmatic. There were projects that were... There's different types of organisations that deliver different types of things, but this was... At that stage, it was very much more programmes. Yeah. And so there's like on cycles and off cycles. And planning time preparing but there wasn't as there is now like we have support that's around the clock so with that sense it, it wasn't like that but it was starting to evolve in that because it's relational mm-hmm. so once you start doing workshops with the young people and they're on a program and you're getting to know them then they might start coming with issues that they're going through yeah. outside of the program and this sense that there's more that's that's needed for them was there from that time but i think yeah, I still wanted to be a lawyer. And when I went to LSE, that was a whole, it was its own journey because studying law at LSE, one of a handful of people from the ends that are there on the course, maybe five of us, that's like from London. Mm. And it's like, this is a university that's on our doorstep, but that's super disconnected. And the first year we're doing criminal law. So I'm learning from a different perspective. I'm seeing how people are learning about the law. I already know about the law from growing up in Grand Park Estate. You yeah. see it, people disappear and then they come back and you don't know where they went and then you find out they went to prison. It's like the police are always there. 
So criminal law didn't feel abstract and I don't think it feels detached for any young person growing up in the hood. But these were a lot of them international students, a lot of them very wealthy. They're looking at it as a module that they have to pass. And th- there was one, I don't think they wanted the majority of the people. I don't know if anybody on that course wanted to be a criminal lawyer. I mean, I was doing work experience from way before I went to uni and already at that time, years before that, criminal lawyers were saying don't come <laughs> don't do criminal law it is like it's terrible for us legal aid is getting cut we barely can survive we don't have any money barristers especially it's like so there was not much in, unless you cared about it I, there wasn't much incentive to go in into the criminal law mm. most people at lse wanted to go to corporate chance or yeah. magic circle make <laughs> your money. Leaders, you know so it's like i think there was one lecture when we started to learn about something called joint enterprise. And I already knew about joint enterprise. I had friends from sick form that were serving time for murder under joint enterprise. Explain a little bit about joint enterprise. Joint enterprise is a legal doctrine that means people who aren't necessarily the primary offender, like the person that actually does something can still be held responsible for that if they encourage or assist, if they were deemed to be somewhat part of it, but it's very loose. Mm. So let's say, for example, me and you are friends, you go out and kill somebody. If I spoke to you on that day and they could show we're together, maybe they try to implicate me because we're from the same area. It can be as loose as that. And looser, I've seen, there's loads of, there's many young people that are in prison for for joint enterprise and we're seeing the, they get the, the same as the person that, I did it. The idea was if you don't know, I guess they started using it. Like if you don't know who did it and it was a group of people that were there, then that's so you all the, get it. you're all going to get it because we can't prove. But sometimes they they do know who it was. The person has admitted it's them and they still, like a dragnet, they still want all the young people. There are cases now, 10 people, 12 people going right. in for a stabbing where there's one stab wound. And, yeah. and you know, this idea that they must know what somebody else is going to do or some a friend was carrying a weapon, so you must know they're going to go and kill someone. But given what I just said before that about young people feeling unsafe and having a lot of anxiety and paranoia justified about, you know, their own safety and whether they will come home alive, some of them are carrying weapons because they'd rather survive yeah. than be killed. So with that context, just because somebody has a knife doesn't necessarily mean that they've left their house with the intention to go and kill someone that day. But... Again, that's that's kind of how the law is quite detached from the emotion of how it feels to grow in an area where your life is under threat. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm learning about joint enterprise in this lecture. The <laughs> the textbook legal aspects of it, and I'm just seeing people. I'm at the back of the lecture hall, so I can see people's laptops going down. Seeing people shopping. I'm <laughs> seeing people doing all kinds of things, not paying attention. And it was that where I just, it's just another lecture. But then, because nobody in there is connected to it. For me, I can't stop, I can't take my attention off of it because I'm thinking about the people I know that, that are suffering inside that shouldn't even be there. Yeah. And how this law can change. But to others, it was just another lecture. And I felt like the law was detached. I felt like there's only so much you can do as a lawyer. You're coming at a different stage in someone's journey and you're 
therefore time limited period with a specific focus around this case mm. you know sometimes they build longer term relationships unfortunately if a young person is you know in a lot of has a lot of cases but it's not their purpose it's not about i felt like there was more i could do to create change i didn't feel like being a lawyer and don't get me wrong we work with some amazing lawyers there are some great lawyers out there that really care that really get the issues and 100% are super necessary in that system that go above and beyond to fight the systemic racism that is happening in that system and we should you know give them more encouragement and support so they are necessary but that's just not the role that I wanted to play and I realized that quite quickly in the into the law degree then I was stuck in it so <laughs> I had to finish it <laughs> so I finished it but I think by the, the end of my first year I knew that I didn't really want to be a lawyer anymore did you feel pressure though like to kind of sell yourself the dream to say okay maybe I can still do it and have other stuff on the side as it were like maybe I can um still follow my original ambition and try and make change from the inside because a lot of people tell themselves that okay i need to get into the system to try and change the system that I, no that never appealed to me and i once i had decided i don't want to be a lawyer anymore i what rash, made it rational for me i was like you know if in, i've got the law degree now if at a later stage i change my mind and want to qualify I, that's still an option for me but i would rather not do that now yeah and so I didn't, and I've I still haven't qualified. And I, don't have, <laughs> I don't have any intention to to do so. However, learning the law was helpful in the work that we do, and the, the building young people's awareness about the law, thinking from a campaigning point of view around how we can change certain laws. You know, having that background has helped in the work that we do. And I don't think again I had to be a lawyer to to make that impact. Mm. And so at that point, when you say graduated, you're doing forefront full time now. Well, I was working full time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was I had just left uni uh, and before leaving we were still doing projects and stuff, scaling up a little bit more, so bigger scale kind of projects and getting some different partnerships and a big program that I actually did when I was at the university was called Legalese. So I got friends that were from LSE but also law students from other university universities as well. And we went into a series of schools in Barnet. And it was very much, when I grew up in school, when you say you want to do law and you say you want to go to Oxbridge, in the end I decided I didn't want to go there, so I didn't apply there. I applied to LSE, but the point being, when you kind of put that forward, like, you're treated a certain way in the school. Yeah, They need that result. They need those people to go to those universities. That's how they feel. So all the programs, opportunities, they only go to you. Mm. There's a small group of people everything is on offer those that need more support or they could still benefit from the programs they're not even selected for the things and i and i saw that so with that legal program it was restricted only for people that had been excluded or were potentially in the school's eyes going to be excluded or a risk of being excluded yeah. because i wanted them to have the opportunity and to be able to say something like that with all of these you know top universities in the country all of these law students um, teaching them the law I wanted them to be able to say they'd been part of something like that but also on a more practical level I knew that they had more understanding of the law yeah. than their peers because for exactly the same reason as I said they're in the communities they're, they're experiencing the law every day mm. so that was a program that I, I really enjoyed and I felt like 
we could do more stuff like that on a bigger scale. So I, I wanted to leave uni and develop those things further. But we had really n- no funding, like very, very little money. And so it was just... Sometimes I think I always... Sometimes I put myself in a situation where I don't have a plan B, so that plan A has to work. Mm. I don't have a choice. <laughs> Same with the university even. Every university I applied for had a grade boundary of A star AA. I'm either going to uni or I'm not. Mm. At that point, the people might say, there's no point of applying to all these unis because really, if I get those grades, I'm going to go to LSE or I'm not. Yeah. People might, someone told me, you should apply to here, here. I didn't want to do that. And so I think that was another, and I'm speaking about a younger mindset now. It's good, you know, it's good to have other <laughs> options. It's good to not limit yourself. But I think at that age, that's how I was driven in that way. I was determined in that way. I was just like, I, I'm going to make it happen because I'm not giving myself another option. Mm-hmm. So with the beginning of pursuing forefront full-time out of uni, when all my friends are going to Clifford Chance and Linklayers, which I knew I d- that wasn't what I wanted to do anyway, but it was like, you know, they have their whatever it was at the time. Serious salaries. 40 grand yeah. started salary. And I'm just like, I don't know how I'm going to pay my, my bills. Mm next month so we'll have to see at that point like how did you kind of deal with that kind of inward pressure but also the peer pressure like because you have your purpose which you want to focus on and the peers that you studied with the people that you even value you, you view yourself as smarter than right are able to get higher salaries but then how are you able to kind of keep that sense of worth and keep going down the route of your purpose because it was never about money for me from a child. I want to be a human rights lawyer, not because there's money, because I saw people on death row and I wanted to exonerate people. Like it, being a lawyer was, wasn't about the money. One time a few years ago, they wrote an article. I did an interview and it said something like, you know, Temi's lifelong ambition of being a corporate lawyer. I was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> that was never what I wanted to do. Like yeah. that wasn't, I never said that. And those, these things around narrative is hard because people will be reading things like that online and they'll build a picture of who you are. And it's just like, sometimes people get it wrong. Like those words never came out of my mouth. It never would have. Anybody that knows me would be able to tell you that. Yeah. So it's like, it wasn't about the money. It's always been about the, the purpose. So I had faith, not really a rational idea of how it would happen, but faith that in your purpose, if it's aligned, even from that early stage, that it will work out because I should be able to, focus the time and energy on making this kind of change that I, w- I want to see, that I want to contribute to. Because mm. it's not just me one, that I want to be part of that bigger movement of people that have tried to make impact in this way. Mm. And yeah, dedicating all the time and energy without having the, the plan B. And a lot of setbacks, loads of setbacks. Anything you want to talk about? As in, at that point, we're applying for different funding, to try and run projects and programs and really volunteer at this point mo- majority of the work was volunteering and supporting young people again without having the resources to do that like building those relationships with, where people are calling when they're getting into trouble when they they're going through really difficult and challenging things and feeling like we need resources to help them As there were some things where like people are not safe like i wanted to have resources to get people to go out, send people out of the area if, if their life was at threat or practical things like that. Yeah. As well as obviously being able to have more people to dedicate the time to supporting people. That was what the money was for. But yeah, it was hard. Like nobody, 
really believed in us as an organization and that's that that weird period where everybody wants you to have this lengthy track record of doing all of this stuff but nobody wants to give any money at the outset for you to even do anything so yeah. we had had some smaller pots of money to do some of the projects i spoke about like the legal project or the the work that i was doing in the school years before and other smaller scale programs like that mm. but now i'm talking about a service that's gonna be much more have more longevity than that and support young people in a much deeper way um and have the resources to do that and i guess i don't know now with what i know about funding it's just it's the same challenges exist today mm. what do you mean by that in that funders have their criteria of what they think should happen in communities and often that might not be what is actually needed in the community mm -hmm. and if you can talk about the right things oftentimes you can get the money whether that's the right thing or not i say the right things and like what they want to hear in that sense and i use an example like gangs there was a period of time where all the money that was coming from for, to work with young people vast majority of the money you had to label them as gang members or at risk of being in gangs you can't just work with young people who might be from communities where they need more support or, or things whatever however you want to frame why do they have to because that has a serious connotation now yeah. once they've given that remember for me I've seen what that label does. That label makes people turn the page and not care about you if you get killed as a child. That label can, once I started learning more from the work, can have you on a database that then blocks you from school and has your whole family threatened with eviction and is used to stop you getting employment. Like I've see, I saw what the gang label could do. So I didn't understand why all this money was being given with that attachment. Yeah. So I didn't want to apply for any funding that had that label even though I knew that the young people we were working with might be labelled by other people as so-called gang members. That's not how, that's not the term, we wouldn't use that language to describe them. So it was, it's those kind of things on principle. I don't want to have to label them like that to access that money, so we're just not going to get that money. Yeah. And that's what I mean by them having their certain criteria and those challenges still existing. Not necessarily exactly the same, I think, terminology and language has come a long way and there is more funding that's available now that to support people i think without those kind of criterias but at the time those were the kind of barriers so it was very hard mm. and also trying to persuade other people to come and work with me and i don't know what i can pay you at the end of the month because i don't know even what i'm going to get paid at the end of the month yeah. it's like we'll see what we do in the month and then we'll see at the end what we can be paid mm -hmm. like we're 21 do you know what i mean so how has the organization kind of like developed in fact how have you shaped the organization based on your own personal experiences because what i noticed obviously i'm on the board for forefront yeah shout shout <laughs> but um i remember when we first had that conversation um many many years ago now and how adamant you were about having young people's voices heard mm. like on a board level or just in terms of decisions being made um and it's funny now because it kind of reminds me of when you were like 16 15 mm. and someone older got your voice involved took your opinions involved and that, that kind of changed things mm. so is that kind of what influenced you to get more young people's voices heard in terms of how the organization is run as well is that what kind of inspired it 
definitely being a young person uh, as it was started it was it was i know that young people can do incredible things yeah. you know and it's like the whole point at the beginning was about our experiences being listened to and that the decision makers mm-hmm. should be taking our experiences on board when they're making those decisions so i think connected to that a lot of the time when for those of us that are doing work that's about changing systems or infrastructure or how things are done changing culture in that way you know you're talking about bigger societal problems but everything is also at different levels so you have to also as they say like you know the change starts with yourself like you have to also look at how you're going to be different in the world like it's one thing talking about how harm can be repaired how governments can you know give reparations for the harm that they've done but then how do you how are you taking accountability for the mistakes that you make or the harm that you cause as as a person so everything can have layers and i think in a similar way it's like the microcosm it's like this idea uh, adrian marie brown talks about it like fractals something at a smaller scale you know what we're trying to create at the bigger scale is going to be replicating what we can do at a smaller scale so sometimes i might just practice being in relation with you in a different way and that gives an example of how it's possible for us to as a society be in relationship with one another in a different way so i think that's important to me and it's not of course we don't always get it right it's hard it's hard to think about create a supportive infrastructure that really allows young all kinds of young people young people that are facing the most extreme challenges as well to be included because their lives can be chaotic and it might also not be a priority for them in that way so like creating different ways for people to still be involved and and have their voices heard on decisions that impact them mm. it's not like a one size fits all um definitely and so i think yeah that was important i like that and then you as an individual how have you been able to develop yourself right because there's a lot of pressure again using that word pressure on you in terms of like i don't want to call you i don't want to say like savior or like the one that you're trying to save everybody or help everybody but it's easy to be viewed as that type of person from people within the estate. And so there's a lot of like pressure on you to be perfect, to get everything right. Um, how have you been able to manage that pressure? If it's, if it's actually appeared, you can tell me if I'm wrong. And how have you been able to like keep yourself developing as a, as a, as a, as a professional, but also as someone who can still connect with like different levels. So even with, the young person who's still like say 13, but also with the funders in their 50s, but still be able to speak the different language. How have you been able to develop yourself in that regard? I don't have a specific, this is what I've done, because I think when you're building something, you learn new skills and you you kind of grow and evolve. And a lot of things are trial and error as well. And you have to try new things. I've learned so much, bearing in mind my journey into adulthood forefront has been alongside so as forefront has grown i have grown i have shaped it the older i've gotten the more wiser and i have got but at the same time taking on responsibility through forefront has also shaped me mm-hmm. personally and helped me to grow and rise to the occasion hopefully sometimes you know mistakes i have made mistakes it's not it hasn't been easy it's been 10 years and i also give myself grace because i was a child and i still look back and i think was that the best thing for a grieving child to do to see this kind of gap and no one thought to you know i i made the point that 
around people not asking how young people feel after they kind of go through these things. Mm. And I did say like for 10 years, for 10 years after Marvin was killed, no one asked me how I felt about it. And I said it in a talk and then somebody, somebody asked me, that was the first time. Yeah. So it's like, I shouldn't have had to do that. And I still look back and whilst I feel grateful for the journey, now looking, do I, would I want a 16 year old to do that? I wouldn't want them to have to do that mm. because they should be living their life and, and growing. And this is the thing with these kind of harms and traumas that we face in our community, it ages you. Yeah. And, and we should be like, I'm very protective over, I want our young people and I want our children in the society to get to be children without having to deal with this, these huge, the weight of these huge issues in society that are harmful to them, that force them to grow up too soon, you know? And I think now, yeah, I've made peace with it, but sometimes I still look back and, yeah, now as, as an adult looking back at my child self, as much as people will praise, oh, you did this so young, like it's so great that you did that so young, I, I feel that there's a bit of grief there mm. from, yeah, I have a completely different life now, but at the same time, I missed out on a lot of child things, yeah. <laughs> childhood things that my friends were doing. And I, I had a choice. I mean, I chose to do it, but at the same time, it wasn't informed. As a, as a child, I wasn't informed about it. I didn't know. And I didn't really have much support. Mm. So I think in terms of developing myself, I think I've tried to, you know, join different programs and connect with different people in different who are doing different things who are doing extraordinary things or abnormal things <laughs> to just learn from from how other people are doing things but also to for support because it can be lonely as well Look, yeah. people don't necessarily understand the there's a lot of anyone that sets something up anyway that's a, it can be a lonely journey but there's also another layer from the kind of work that forefront does around people not understanding the kind of trauma that that we're dealing with, you know, that we're dealing with in our community, the things that we're exposed to, the the, the way that that takes, the toll that it takes on us mm. going through those things. And I think in that sense, that can also be lonely, feeling like people, feeling like we have to fight all the time to be, to even be understood, for our communities to be understood. And then at the same time, carrying the weight of, that's still a pressure. It's not a support. It's like, yeah. No one can support what they don't understand. Mm. And I don't know how people would understand without being without being in it. They can empathize to an extent. They can have sympathy, but they're not there in the hood on the ground with the things that are happening. Mm. They don't see it. They might hear about it, but it's different dealing with that day to day. Mm. I can imagine. Is there any particular work that you do that you've seen has had the most impact and probably other organizations are sleeping on by not trying to implement that work themselves? It's hard to say, and the reason I say that is because the foundation of our work is relationships. So a lot of the work that we do, I don't think would be possible if we hadn't had these longer-term relationships with people. So, for example, a young person might be able to take part in this program or, or speak to these decision-makers about these issues that they're going through and try and create a more a wider change to different systems. But they wouldn't have been able to do that if... Maybe we didn't have the relationship that we formed from going with them over a year period to yeah. the police station every week and not talking anything about that wider. No, mm. just being there for them, 
supporting their family might have been playing games in there might have been tears might have been deep conversations about the future and young people not seeing themselves even having a future that's been some of the hardest parts to speak with young people not just myself other people on our team but to to speak to young people who genuinely don't know if they're going to live beyond 18 mm-hmm. 21 and not being able to even envision a future for themselves so it's like what I think makes our work unique is that from the beginning, it has had a wider lens. It's been about creating change in the system to the issues that affect young people and acknowledging that the young people in our community in Graham Park Estate are very much like other young people in different communities across the country and also across the world, yeah. in different communities across the world. And so having that approach, think global, act local, trying to connect our youth with young people from other communities in different parts of the world who share similar experiences and seeing Graham Park for us as the microscope, like we want to go deep and really show people through the hyperlocal, through that hyperlocal work being there every day, it being community rooted and, and driven, like a lot of people on the team, we also grew up on that estate mm. and I think that's important. So for us, it's being able to to do both, work at a really local level, but at the same time amplify that and connect the dots with others that are also in their small areas Mm -hmm. so that we have a stronger united voice around the issues that are affecting people across the whole country. And as I said, sometimes global issues, the issues around policing and the legal system and racial injustice, especially in the legal system, that's not just the UK. Mm. That's across Europe, that's America, that's in in all these different geographies. And then what's happening in different parts on the continent as well. It's like connecting the dots. They learn from each other. They share their strategies, their weapons, tools, guides. They send each other to go and train. But it's like, sometimes it can be hard to see how all of those systems are very connected. And we also need to be connected in in our resistance to that as well. So do you think there's not enough collaboration going on at the moment then? I think it's hard to, it's, it's hard to collaborate because there's different elements. One, everybody is quite... The challenges that you face with any organization, collective, you know, group that's trying to work, capacity, that is not just talking about money, it's time, it's energy, mm. resources being limited, and however you want to look at the different kinds of resources that people that would be needed to power something like that. And so it can be easier to be a bit siloed, focusing tunnel vision in your own work that you're doing. But it's not there's a lot of competition. Mm. But that's not created from people in the community. That's created by those funding infrastructure that tell us, okay, the only 10 of you are going to get the money, but yeah. 200 people applied. So now there's there's that sense of competition and people not wanting to work together because even though we're all doing kind of different things, so it, would be ampl- it could be amplified mm. from working together. But I also think another challenge is around values. Like not having the space, space and time, like spaciousness being a resource in and of itself not having the space to really build connection because people are so busy doing the work in their own, you know, communities or in their own ways. Then how do we know that we would even share values to work together? Because those kind of relationships take time to build. And I see that, you know, it's like some funding is like, oh, you know, you can join this consortium. And people have approached us and said, you know, this funding is going out in three weeks. We want to be, you can be in our partnership. And it's just like, 
don't know you. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know what you're about. We've got to commit to working together for two years. We've never even heard heard of you before. Mm. And I'm not talking, these are not small, uh, oftentimes these are not other smaller organisations. They're much bigger organisations that don't necessarily have connection with community, the ability to deliver on this work they're saying they're going to do. And so they use organisations that are actually on the ground to be like bid candy in a way because they don't have the relationships. But they have the capacity to respond to a, an application like that at short notice mm. But the part on the values, that's something that's very important to us. And I know other community groups that we've been able to build with over the years and build that relationship with, those kind of values, that's important to them as well. Yeah. Do we actually have similar ideas about the the systems that we're resisting? And do we have similar ambitions for what change of those systems looks like? And at a basic level, are we just actually aligned on some core values around how we're going to work together? Mm. It's hard to work with people if you don't know those things. So I think there's a lot of barriers to collaboration, but there are a lot of people that do want to collaborate. There yeah. are a lot of groups that want to collaborate. And, and it feels really good when we're able to do things together. Even like coming up, we've got a group that's visiting us from Paris. So we're going to be showing them around the estate. They're going to connect with young people from Forefront. And hopefully they get to build connection. Do you know that's what amazing. I mean? That's yeah. really powerful. Last year we went... We went to Paris actually, and we met a, a young, a group of young people from Chicago. They were coming over, and those kind of opportunities, yeah, they can shape us. Do you know what I mean? Because we it validates our experience. It's not just our community. What we have more in common, resisting something like the gang matrix, yeah, with communities in Chicago. They've been having to resist that, <laughs> and we learn a lot from that. You know, a few years ago, I had the privilege to be able to do a, a project where I was able to go to different um, communities and, you know, learn more about their work and come back and reflect on on how to, you know, shape Forefront as a result of what I had learned there. And I ended up, I spent some time in Brazil, I spent time in different parts of America and I learned so much from the way they were resisting. 100% it shaped what Forefront has become mm. that way. It's interesting because it's like, there's all these different opportunities that are available, but because of the lack of funding and the lack of like power and just, just personnel, you can't explore everything. Because in my mind, when you were talking about like, I just, I just envisioned like someone who speaks to all of these grassroots organizations, like creates like a matrix, which shows like the values, who should work, who should do, like who should connect these people, what the project they should work on together, where the collaboration should lie. Even like an annual dinner where everyone just comes together. But like someone has to do that. That's the that's the hard part. It's like cool. We wanna bring young people from all different parts of the yeah. world to talk really talk about these issues. That's gonna be expensive thing to yeah. do. Yeah. So it's not for lack of ideas or, or ambitions or, or desires and, and that's that's the shame we're limited. Mm. The dream for I'm so, I'm sure for any, you know, because funding can be so it can be such a challenge and it's like it's not just about there's trusts and foundations there's like the public can donate and that's really really helpful but it's like a puzzle trying to get small different pieces mm. put it together to make something bigger and that can be a challenge as well so of course it would be like a dream if somebody just says really believe in what you're doing here's a couple million crack on because on that right that doesn't yeah. happen it never, it never happen. well it hasn't happened to us <laughs> maybe it happens to us but. <laughs> but on that right like public support public donations and it reminds me of say 2020 like mm. george floyd blm and the whole word of woke and the rest of it yeah 
the what did you call the whole it? world of woke woke like woke where woke used to be <laughs> a word that yeah. shows that you're actually like on job but now it's like a dirty word mm. where you are nothing too good or kind of People thing like yeah, you SJW. Yeah. I'm like, why wouldn't you want to be a social justice warrior? You know that is a saying? sick name. If any label, mm-hmm. why would that one be have a negative connotation? That's the label I would take over social entrepreneurship. It's, it's, it's mad. And, and that's why I just wonder, like, how do you, um, like, how do you get the public not disillusioned or not exhausted when it comes to the problems that are facing our youth? Like, how do you get them galvanized again, whether it comes to donating their time donating their money like because i feel with the whole blm thing the fact that there's the general cause or purpose and then there's got the actual organization and you've got the random people who might be like pilfering funds but you've got other places where the funds are being put into good use like how do you kind of combat that and try and get public back on side if that makes sense i think yeah it was very it's complicated because at the same time to mobilize people at those times it's like if everybody is you're going to use a the hashtag is different from the organization mm-hmm. there were many more groups that were organizing to actually just affirm that yeah that black lives actually matter but yeah. it doesn't look like they matter in these countries in in our context because we're not being treated as if our lives are valuable or as, mm-hmm. a, as if our lives are worth anything so just simply affirming that as a statement there were a lot of people that were doing that that one were not part of any organized group and shouldn't have had to be to, to affirm that or two were part of lots of completely different organizations all across different parts of different countries that were using this term as a kind of umbrella to come together around racial justice and the way that anti-black racism in particular is impacting people in society and then i think you add the other layers of okay so then we want to support that Mm. let's send money but then where's the money going it's like there's different actual organizations that have the I don't know how to put it, like more formal connection to that term as as, as a name for their organisation. Mm-hmm. So I think there was also, there was a lot of stuff, like, for example, there was a, <laughs> there was an article about something to do with the way the funding had been used for BLM in America. Yeah. And The Voice was reporting on it. And they used a picture of our forefront young people at our protest no in way. London. And we had to email them like, why is this picture being connected to this article like this has like nothing to do with us but that's how those kind of connotations happen do you know what i mean and and obviously there's more layers to it than that but people were starting to send it to me and i was like wait hold on a minute laziness (laughs) yeah what is this so i think they they, and they took it they changed it quickly but it's that kind of maybe they just searched shut you know they just looked online and tried to find any picture of young people mm. anything to do with blm regardless of country regardless of, of whatever but i think that goes to show it's like it's broader than that and i think it's evolved so much in the last since 2014 really um since since 2013 but 2014 i think in this country we started mobilizing and having kind of solidarity protests outside the u.s embassy and stuff for different like michael brown and different things that had happened early on at that time so it's changed so much since then. But I think in 2020, yeah, there was an outcry of, of public support. We were supported as an organisation. I'm sure other organisations got, got support as well. And then it's like, it's gone. Mm. What, month, two months? All these huge commitments. More broadly, the Black Square Summer. So everyone's <laughs> promising. <laughs> everyone's promising to do something. Yeah. And everyone has energy for it. It didn't last very long, yeah. quite frankly. Even, yeah, it didn't last very long. But you asked another question that I think is really important, 
and that's about how you still mobilize people when it can be draining to hear about like such deep and grave harms that are happening and I think what's really important is it's about hope nobody wants to be part of a movement of misery and it's really difficult because when you are talking about such extreme harms and that people aren't aware of the full extent of the traumas that people are experiencing as well and all the layers of harm our communities go through there's a shift that of course we want people to really know what we're going through so we have to talk about those traumas and harm but I think there's a balance and where the hope comes into it it's not just about saying okay these are the things we're going through just know what we're going through we actually have a vision for society of how it can be different mm. and how we can repair and how we can heal and some of the steps we would need to take to do that and actually the vision that we're offering and i'm not just talking about forefront i'm talking about people that more other organizations and people collectives that are involved in these movements we are offering a much better vision for society when it comes to especially issues around the legal system policing prisons it's like our version of the world is much more everybody would want to be part of that it benefits everyone not just our communities it benefits the whole society to be part of a country or a wider society that actually has healing at its core that is genuinely about accountability and repairing harm and not just punishment mm. that isn't going to send children to prison for longer than they've been alive where they have no connection and human contact or education and their rights are just abused no that is willing to spend more money on sending a child to Feltham than to Eton. It costs like four times as much. And I'm not saying that all young people should go to Eton, but my point is look at the priorities. Yeah. When we found out how much it costs to send a child to Feltham for one year, I mean, it can be £170,000 plus per child, per year. £170,000? Pounds. plus? Yes. Wow. That's not even the most ex expensive YOY. Like to send a young person to Cookhamwood. Yeah. It's more than £200,000 a year. So it's like, once we understood that and we had a conversation in the, in the community, we asked some of our members how many of them had been to Feltham, how many people they knew who had been to Feltham, how many years we're starting to talk about that people have spent in, in Feltham. Just, just as I said with the microscope, let's just take this one estate and this one prison and look at this one relationship. And it was millions of pounds. And of course, the price of sending someone changes each year, but it was still millions of pounds. Mm. Imagine if they actually invested that in the, in our community's health, in the education. There's something about human nature that just that just doesn't that doesn't want you to invest. They rather like put money. So like right now, they've cut like I think youth funding has gone by like seventy percent over the last ten years because of austerity, and they're just putting more money say into the criminal justice system, which isn't necessarily helping anything. Do you know what I mean? Like, in your vision, in your world, like, what would that justice system? In what would that justice system look like? It's connected to what I was saying before. So much about our system is there's a lot of delusion. It's like it's not what it says on the tin. Yeah, it talks about accountability. There is no accountability. It's not actually about survivors and what survivors need. It doesn't acknowledge that a lot of people that have harmed people are also survivors who have been harmed themselves and didn't get any so-called justice you know it's re it's reimagining what is justice mm. and reclaiming that word away from this criminal justice system i don't even use that term anymore i either call it the criminal legal system or the criminal punishment system but because i'm reclaiming part of a move wider movement of people reclaiming that word justice say that system and what it's doing doesn't look like anything like justice and i think there are people that are genuinely interested in repair like how do we repair harm 
all different layers of harm from violence to, to other harms that happen things that the the legal system is dealing with i think it's important to remember that not everything that is harmful is a crime and not everything that is a crime is harmful the legal system is about crime and it defines the boundaries of what it's going to label as that and there's other agendas underneath it and behind it that are deeply connected to to ca- the capitalism, the system that we live under, the economic system. And this, we gener- you know, we've got surplus labour. Yeah. They're not really needed. They're housed there. It's a whole other layer. It's underneath unemployment. It's not even to do with that. It's a, mm. another layer of society. And most people... Most people have no clue what's happening in prisons. We incarcerate more people, like across in Western Europe as a whole. Like we incarcerate more people, and we we're always looking. I say we like the country is always looking to America. It's like no, <laughs> don't look there. That's like the wrong place. As some to say, as if you know, longer sentences, all these things like deter people. All these other arguments. It's just not true. Like we know that let's invest in social systems and. Let's address the social issues that people face in the communities. There's less likely to be crimes and harms as well. It's not just about crimes, but even in their own language, there's less likely to be crimes. If it was really about preventing crime, they would do it differently. And if it was even just about economics and we looked at any business that's failing repeatedly and on every metric, would they continue to get investment? So I don't understand how... Well, the Met Police is in special measures. is <laughs> is really grave. There's no metric that you could say that they're doing well in any way. Mm-hmm. Reports coming out every day, all different levels of... It's not even just individual misconduct. Like It's such a barren institution in terms of morality, in terms of rep- like the harm that it does. And it's been decades and decades, so there's so much intergenerational trauma there and harm that's there. And yet it continues to get investment. There's prisons that, again, especially some of the youth ones, like they really will be put in special measures, which means no more young people can be sent there for these periods of time because they are deemed to be failing. And it's deemed to be unsafe for young people to be there. And yet they continue to get investment. So it's like, again, if you applied a different... No, it wouldn't work in another way. Mm. And quite frankly, other social systems are being defunded <laughs> strategically, but also it's not saying that they're failing. It's, it wasn't that youth services are failing, let's take away the money. Mm. But And yet the money was, was divested from there. So back to the hope thing, because I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's quite bleak. But I think what keeps, what will continue to galvanize and mobilize people and what keeps people like myself going is actually hope. Like I genuinely believe it doesn't have to be like this and there is a wider vision for a society that isn't structured like this and for young people's lives to not look the way they currently do, for our communities to be genuinely well-resourced, filled with opportunity, care, community at that real sense, connection, learning about how to be in relation with one another in a way that we're not harming each other. Mm that's easier and that's much more attractive than being a country that incarcerates more people than anywhere else in western europe that spends billions on doing that with very little to show for it because the re-offending rate is super high yeah 
So it's time to try something different. Yeah. And I think that's where we can get people to to come alongside to say, it's going to be better than this. Whatever it is, it's a very <laughs> low bar to get to improve from yeah. this, you know. And I think there's layers. Not everybody has to know the ins and outs and all the intricates, but it's just at a foundational level again around the values. Would you rather invest in healing or would you invest in punishment? And I think most people would say, no, healing sounds better. I love the word like healing, repair, because um, it, they're never used like how you've used it in the terms of like dealing with this problem. It's always about like, okay, how do you stop knife crime or how do you stop crime in these areas rather than how do you repair the trauma in these areas that could therefore lead to the reductions in what you're trying to aim for? You know? I think it's, it, lang again, as I said, language, language is super so important yeah. because in 2011, our Prime Minister, David Cameron, said he was going to wage a war on gangs and gang culture. Yeah. Just recently in Paris, after they've had their uprisings, after the, the killing of Nail, the police said they are at war with the community. They literally said they are at war with the community. So it's like, who wants this war? Mm. Communities aren't coming. People in communities, young people in communities... Community members are not saying they want to war with the police or war with any of these other institutions. It's not a war. Yeah. We say we want peace. We actually want real peace in our communities. And we want justice too. When people are saying no justice, no peace, it's not saying... It's saying that we're never going to experience justice. We're never going to experience peace if we're not getting justice and we, we haven't experienced justice. It's not justice for for so many people to be killed by the police and nobody's ever been held accountable. And yet we have young people in prison on joint enterprise for murders that they haven't done. It's not justice, you know? And we're actually interested in peace, building peace and reducing violence in the language that you were just talking about. Like, that's not the same thing. Mm. And building peace is a much more ambitious, but also wide-ranging project. It's much more exciting yeah like and all-encompassing and more holistic because then you actually have to think well what are the different elements to having peace and what are the what does peace mean to you as a person what does it mean to our friendship group what does it mean to our family as a unit these are just words unless we define them and add substance to them and we have to do the same thing with justice as well i think there's a lot of confusion you know because this system has claimed that word for so long yeah. and people know that's not really justice doesn't really feel that doesn't really feel aligned to what justice is but also haven't got another definition of what it could be and so a lot of our work is about is about trying to support people to understand this notion of transformative justice which is about how we address harm and violence without creating more harm and violence mm -hmm. we see an institution like a prison where people experience so much harm and at a base level is designed to remove people from society which is harmful you know that is creating more harm so-called in the service of addressing harm that's happening so there is different ways that we can look at doing things and even that as a framework to guide us we can ask those questions is this as an if this approach is actually going to create more harm in the community mm. there's a grassroots level but there's also the policy level right because Ultimately, it's the politicians that have the power to make things happen or to make things or to change things, right? Um, and I wonder, are we missing a trick in terms of like lobbying, right? So when when it comes to lobbying, when it comes to like oil and gas companies, banks, um, tech companies, they have like money to basically sponsor politicians and make sure that their agenda gets pushed 
where it needs to get pushed. And I feel with this regard, that bit is missing. Like, how do you get politicians interested to actually change this? Because they will get a lot of flack. And at the end of the day, they just want the popular vote. They don't really want to give people the bitter medicine or the bitter pill, as it were. Because look at, look at Corbyn, for example. For no fault of his own, he was demonised in the paper, demonised as a communist or whatever, maybe, even though he had... Um, he had ideas that would really be ambitious for, say, the Labour Party well, and look for the how country. long after people, everyone was demonising him talking about free Wi-Fi, then COVID comes and everybody was Literally. saying Wi-Fi should be Literally. a mission. So e- even, even, I think, I think I saw in the paper, either he was, um, th- when he had his vision and it was so ambitious, they were like, what is this nonsense? And now they're saying, where's Labour's ambitious vis- vision? Like, it's just nonsense. So, like, how do we drive change at that policy level? Well, that before you asked that specific question, it made me think when you were talking about politics and lobbying and those kind of things, there needs to be a good assessment of how change actually happens. And when you're talking about real deep, like systemic and societal change, it's going to happen on different layers. And an example that I have, Graham Park is being, Collindale is being gentrified, Graham Park is being regenerated, that whole area has been changing for years and it's going to be changing for more another decade at least and I had a really I'd like to walk I walk a lot around the area every day pretty much and when one walk I went on I saw a block well what was felt like yesterday was a block and then today it was rubble (laughs) and I was just like (laughs) it's just gone yeah it's just bulldozers like it's just destroyed and then on another part of the walk, I saw something that just a week ago was like foundations. And now it's like taking a lot of shape and it's looking like a tall block. And it made me think, that is really what we're talking about. It's not going to be linear. It's going to be very messy. When we're talking about dismantling systems and building new systems, it's not going to be, okay, overnight everything's rubble and now we're going to build everything from like the ground. No, we're going to have to dismantle some things, build new things, continue building while other things are getting dismantled and knocked down. And it's like, it's going to be a transition. Mm. And I actually feel like that transition is already happening because a lot of, uh, there is a lot of work taking place in communities that is practicing these other ways of dealing with harm, of responding to things. And that communities have been forced over generations to deal with certain things on their own because they haven't got the support from other institutions to, to address certain things. I feel like we create systems, we always have. I'm thinking back even in a different sense of like economic solidarity and mutual aid through like partner or, you know, different communities called it different things. But like we're not getting support from the bank or from the mainstream. There's going to be no other way for us to survive in this country and buy things and do things unless we club together and pool our resources. So we have to make that system and those systems have survived until today. So... In a similar vein, and there's so many different examples, our communities have been building infrastructure to deal with living in a society that doesn't value them and that ostracizes them and marginalizes them in in many ways, right? And so I think, yes, there's policy change and there's like work that can be done with politicians and there's like that level and layer of the work. But when I spoke earlier about like the difference between even activism or if you want to call it organizing, it's like, there's also work to be done at a very grassroots level in communities with people, with ordinary working people, because this notion around punishment, we all have it as well. 
we can all be punitive. We've grown in a punitive society. So there's something about shifting mindsets and and also people's beliefs in what is possible and practicing those things. So there's as much work to be done in communities with ordinary people as there is to be done with other communities from different parts of the country that are completely disconnected from these issues and don't really care about these issues as much as there is to be done with those that have different power and to make decisions that can create change as well. So the strategy has to be, again, multifaceted and coming at it from different angles and with different layers. There's work to be done to empower people that are in prisons to better have their voices heard and for their experiences to be more understood in a society that puts them away, throws away the key, and that most people have this sense that it's becoming, it's a hotel and it's fun. Yeah. So we should just have send more people to. It's just so detached. They probably majority of those people have never been to a prison. I don't think most people would be able to maintain that type of view of it if they actually set foot inside one. Mm-hmm. So there are different ways that we have to approach it, but it's not easy. And there is more that can be done at a political level. But then again, it's like how do you, where do you invest energy and time, and what is the group's like? purpose that different organizations that maybe only want to work on the grassroots level and that's fine and they should do that and some that are only about trying to create policy changes i'm skeptical a little bit of that because it needs to also be rooted in those that have the experiences and their lived experience and what they've been through and they need to have a, a way to Im- inform that decision yeah, well, that's because that change because i feel like those people what that grass grassroots level they need that advocate who can speak for them in those type of places. So similar to that person that I said is linking up all, all those organisations, there should be that person that people can look towards that will have their voice when speaking in Parliament or speaking to certain ministers behind closed doors. Like, I feel like that link is kind of missing. And I do wonder, or well, I do hope that similar to, say, how you went to LSE from the ends, you know what you're doing, like coming back. And there's other people who are from the ends, but they're still going into the system that they don't lose that connection. And they're still able to advocate yeah. for where they came from without losing sight of who they are kind of thing. I think it's hard because in society, we're really sold this dream of, I say dream, we're, we're told that if you come from a community like mine, it's about getting out mm. and then like send the elevator back down or, or something like that like give back yeah and it's I've, i just i've never kind of understood that it's not giving back i wouldn't say what i do is giving back to my community i'm in the community no you're, you're back in there you're back in there i think i think it's i think it's like um not giving back i feel it's like bringing the community with you is and it's a different yeah. it's something different so i feel unfortunately I really feel there's n- that doesn't happen enough and I think it's hard it's also hard yeah. to, to do that but I, d- I don't know if it's because it's not also shared as like this is a route so people do think the only way to give back is actually through having some other kind of career and then giving money to charity or something like that but it's like actually time is needed yeah. your personal time your skill set your, your energy yeah. your resources in that way it's, it's much bigger than money and so yeah, even back to that, like from an early point, it was never going to be go and be this lawyer and then, you know, donate to to charities. And some people do that and they're happy with that. But I wanted to actually be part of it. And I, I want more people to want to be part of it because we need people with different skill sets yeah. also to play different roles. We need <laughs> We need everything. If we're trying to build new systems, 
we need a whole range of different skills. That's why I really feel like that there is a role for everybody, but the role isn't the same. Agreed. Agreed. Especially like if you're in the professional world and you're from like say a finance background, HR background, tech background, whatever, like if there are organizations in your community that are close to you, like you said, don't just donate money. Like how can you donate your time? Not to the actual people, but what about the actual organization yourself? Like how can you help them with the infrastructure? How can you help them continue to be there for another 10 years, as it were? Um, thank you, Temi. So I've got a couple quick fire questions for you. So outside of work, mm-hmm. outside of the things that you do with Forefront, what is something that you do that people don't know about or something that you're passionate about that not many people know about? That not many people know about. I feel like I'm quite open with my passions. <laughs> um, I love plants so okay. much. So I love growing things. And yeah, I love the gym. I love music. Mm-hmm. I've, music. If I didn't go through doing all of this, I think from a very young age, music was like I was always part of the choir. I you can sing. I love singing. <laughs> I was always part of all the musicals. I loved acting. I just love that type of creativity. Yeah, yeah. I told you this before because you used to play the saxophone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I play the piano. I think those are like when you get put in all those boxes, it's like, oh, you have to do something. Like, why can't you have something that's more all-encompassing? Exactly. So the music element is, yeah, very, like, deep to my heart as well. I love watching music. I love making music. And, yeah, I think we need music. It's good for the soul. It's really? what keeps us grounded. But it's also expression. Like, we can express so much through it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I enjoy that. But I think, yeah, I'm a bit of a boring person, to be honest. I spend most of my time... Hey, this stuff but yeah outside, outside of that yeah i've got a lot of plants <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna borrow some um what's one thing that you believe but most people disagree with you on about it well at this point i don't want to say most people disagree because i actually have hope that if people knew more they would they would agree but yeah the things we've been speaking about i think most mm. people are still quite invested in the kind of punishment system we have from policing to prisons and i think it's because they don't see a different way so i believe that there's a way we can structure society to deal with harm and conflict and trauma that doesn't create more of those things and that is genuinely about care and repair and i hope people would want to agree with me if they knew more about that okay and um could you name a movie book or song even that is kind of that's influenced you um, the most into who you are today? The most? That would be too hard. Okay. Can't say the most. Your most favourite one? Favourite would also be too <laughs> hard. <laughs> I can't. Those are big statements. Yeah. I would say a book that really influenced me was Asata Shakur's autobiography. Mm-hmm. That really deeply influenced me. And I think it's an incredible book that people should should really take in. Um, Why? why because again i feel like people don't know the day-to-day and her account of her experience of of organizing of growing up as a young person then of organizing and then of being attacked by the state and the injustice of that system and what she experienced in prison which is very extreme torture that she experienced that she accounts like i think most people would not and yet, I think most people would not know that. And yet the the hope that she maintained, that she still had her daughter, that was something that impacted me the most from that book. I'm giving spoilers. I think okay, you should okay, read okay. it anyway. But I feel like, 
yeah it just showed me that love love and the joy that we deserve as a community is beyond any suffering that we experience and even in the midst of our suffering we still have to live we still have to have our children we still have to have fun we still have to have joy yeah even through the trauma and the pain so that's i think from i was quite young when i read that book and that's something that i took away from that that influenced me a lot and then a film that influenced me i would say when i was about 11 or 12 i watched cry freedom learn about steve biko and what was happening in South Africa and that deeply moved me. Mm. And I didn't realise so much until later on in life, but that was probably my some of my first early understandings of like police violence. Yeah. And that of course has like shaped a lot of the work that I've gone on to do. Awesome. Brilliant. Um before we close, where can people find you, follow you, support Forefront? Forefront is online on everything. Mm. For at Forefront Project on most things, forefrontproject.org online and yeah, that's where you can find more about our work. Cool. Awesome. Thank you very much, Temi. Been a pleasure.